Wakiata Koto, everyone, and welcome again to New Zealand Over the Horizon, where uh, Peter Bale and I um, go around the traps of the world of geopolitics, ahoon as we call it here on the Kaka, um, the collective noun for the Kaka, for the Kaka, and uh, basically just look out over the horizon, see what's happening there that we think is of interest in New Zealand, and chew it over and spit it out. Yeah. <laughs> Chew it over using our using our gigantic uh, crowdsourced brains. Yeah. Yes, yes, and the the magic of the internet to understand what's going on. Although it helps that both of us have worked overseas for a couple of decades and been in the news business and um, know where the, some of the bodies are buried. But yeah, um, Peter, tell us what you want to have a go at first. Yeah, well, first I up. thought today, Bernard, um, having have, well, I should say having having looked at what you've been doing this week, I'm. Having looked at what you've uh, been looking at this week, I'm pretty sure that we're going to be talking about inflation, uh, money supply, probably housing. I'd be surprised if we managed to get out without housing. And the one interesting thing that you've been talking about this week is how we might use nudge economics to get a level of herd immunity in New Zealand to COVID-19, which I find an extremely interesting sort of uh, interface between your economic intelligence and your, uh, and your newfound skills as an epidemiologist. Um, <laughs> right. I think when we when we get on uh, to some other things that I've been writing about this week, we might look at what happens when you get a year's worth of rain in a day or in an hour, in fact. Uh, what's going on with the fires in Siberia uh, and the west w- w- western uh, United States, and why New York has the worst air, air quality in the world this week, which uh, Beijing is usually tarred with, and they will be absolutely loving the fact that New York's New Yorkers. Um, Getting a taste of their medicine, if you like. But t- tell us a bit, Bernard. You, you, this week, you mix up in your uh, podcast for um, the spin-off some economics and epidemiology. What was that yeah, about? I'm, I'm fascinated with the growing practice of what's called behavioural economics. This is essentially mm. where uh, behavioural scientists, behavioural psychologists, look at how humans actually work in markets, how we're not actually very rational at all. And when you're designing economic policy or government policy, instead of going straight for the classical economics, everyone's in it for themselves, and mm. it's all about just giving them a big enough um, chunk of money to do what they, you want. Instead, uh, behavioral economists and behavioral scientists look at the very small, sometimes boring details in a policy and see if you can achieve what you want by tricking is too strong a word, but at least, you know, nudging yeah, people. And giving, giving people the right gentle incentives, including the idea that they're doing something. I mean, where, where I think this is potentially very good for New Zealand is New Zealand still has a well spring of people who want to do good things for each other and to be considered good. And that is, you know, that's as valuable as an economic thing in a sense that you, that people want to be, do right by each other. Yeah, and and the practice of um, behavioural economics often uses those sorts of interesting psychological, um, supposedly irrational, but often quite intuitive mm. theories when they're designing um, a product or trying to make something happen. And so I decided to have a look at this massive challenge New Zealand has now of going from you know naught to a hundred in terms of vaccination, from well behind everyone else in the pack. Yeah, and to do it as fast as we possibly can, and as high as we can to get somewhere close to herd immunity, which, with the Delta variant, seems to be well probably over probably in the nineties. 
Yeah, yeah, it'll be in the 90 percent odd. Yeah, and now that it's it's quite clear that countries overseas who've had a much earlier start than us, in particular um, the United Kingdom, the United States, many parts of Europe, are finding that they're hitting that sort of fifty to sixty percent plateau, and then they can't get any higher. Mm. Obviously, there's a quite a bit of vaccine hesitancy, but it's more than that. It's people, you know, not having the logistics or the the right mobile phone or the right messaging or the right um, the, the the type of um, vaccinator that they're comfortable with or the right mm. messaging to get them over the line. And well, so, I don't know what they can be reading, though, Bernard. I mean, I just I, I think that's true to some extent. I mean, they say I think in New Zealand that the that the uh, indicative level of vaccine hesitancy is around 20%. But I think because of the level of trust that Jacinda Ardern and the government and the Ashley, Ashley uh, um, have uh, created, Ashley Bloomfield have created, that they have a moment where they can be trusted and are trusted. And I just feel that, though, that, that, they're, that they're taking far too long. I mean, I, I, I still haven't heard a good enough explanation from the government, whether it's from Jacinda Ardern or from Chris Hitkins, about quite why the rollout is so slow. And it's been very interesting to see Andrea Vance and, and Derek Chang and a couple of the other New Zealand journalists finally starting to tackle this, because I think the, the parliamentary gallery has been a little bit too close to Jacinda on this and unwilling, you know, the, the government's attitude towards its own um, performance on vaccines, where it will issue these statistics and say we are 6% ahead of target. You know, if the target is low enough, you'll, be, you'll beat it. But I, I think you're right, because uh, nudge economics, of course, comes from Richard Thaler, the, um, the, 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 the social scientist, and Cass Sunstein, a book, book by them. And you might remember that Downing Street uh, in the UK created a nudge unit. I think it was under David Cameron because he was very attached to this. And a, and a guy he had working there, um, Steve Hilton, were very, was very attached to it. He's unfortunately become a right-wing nutter in the US now. But the nudge unit actually got spun out of Downing Street and is now a kind of standalone think tank. And it is, it is quite interesting. It's about, sometimes it's about the line of least resistance as well, is that you make it easy for people to do the right thing and they'll do it. You know, things like uh, making pensions, pension investment compulsory may seem like a compulsion, but actually if you make it easy for it to happen, it'll happen. You know, that's that's one of the mo- that's been one of the most successful nudges, certainly in Britain. But how did you think nudge might work for, for vaccines, Bernard, here? Yeah, well, there's a couple of ways in which you could do it um, that don't involve compulsion. There's a real mm. reluctance to get people, to force people to do it. Mm. And the examples of vaccination programs overseas, for example, in Australia, where all beneficiaries are forced to vaccinate their kids mm-hmm. at threat of losing their benefit. And that didn't work, actually. Um, not only no, did it's a it start, it's a horrible, yeah. It's a horrible, isolating, marginalising sledgehammer. Yeah, and so you don't want to do that here in New Zealand. But, for example, um, the, the types of languaging that you use in your text messages, telling people to sign up for the um, book book your vaccine. And, of course, the Book My Vaccine site itself, making that so simple that people don't Mm. have to think about it, that um, hopefully the user experience of that site, I haven't had that famous message yet to tell me to go on board, but I'm Mm. told others Mm. have managed to to make it work so far. Uh, Making sure that's very smooth and then thinking about the sorts of incentives and the types of things that work for different populations. In many ways, it's um, analogous, I, I think, to um, 
trying to work out who your market is, slicing and dicing and tweaking your product for the different types of, of, Absolutely. Um, of markets. And, yeah, because uh, I think if you remember, Bernard, last year, there was a really interesting shift. Sorry to interrupt you. There was a really interesting shift when uh, a couple of Polynesian people died or Pacifica people died in South Auckland there was, uh, of COVID. There was a real recognition that the messaging hadn't worked, hadn't gotten through, and you suddenly saw uh, All Blacks coming up on the adver- advertising. You heard uh, a lot more um, Pacifica and Maori GP and so GPs and so on. And I and I think there is something about people seeing people like them. I, I think also that the message from littering is actually quite good in this too. They, they do the right thing. People want to do the right thing if it's easy to do the right thing. Um, and and I think you know I, I was looking at a, a British epidemiologist comments today that. Um, vaccination is extremely helpful for the individual, but someone who's not vaccinated near you is not necessarily going to damage you. They may be damaging themselves and their families. So it's a it's a it's a funny a funny locus. But I I, um, I I think this whole herd immunity thing is very interesting because, as you will recall, uh, what Boris Johnson was trying to do at the UK or was very heavily influenced at one point in the UK was the Swedish approach, which. The Swedes, the Sky Anders Tegnell, the, the head of public public health there, has denied that it was a, directly a, um, a herd immunity strategy. But what what's so funny about the way people talk about herd immunity now is that it's become a perversion to the normal thing, which is to achieve herd immunity, you need a certain level of, of vaccination. And what people have been saying is, can we also achieve herd immunity through catching COVID through a significant percentage of the population actually having the antibodies and having having beaten off COVID. The trouble is we still don't know how long the protection from having it confers. You know, we we barely know we barely know how long the protection for the vaccine lasts. We simply do not know whether it's three months, one month, or a year that you get from having had it. And the the great risk, of course, is that you get long COVID. That's right. And also, there's been many cases of people catching it twice. And particularly as the variants change and the Mm. lethality and the um, transmissiveness of the uh, Delta variant now is so explosive that um, you don't want to take any risks on this. And it it seems extraordinary to me. I think one of the big events this week in the world has been the um, decision by Boris Johnson to push ahead with this Freedom Day nuttiness mm-hmm. in which on the very day they opened up, all the kids converged on the nightclubs and within a day, Boris Johnson had had to do a flip-flop and say that mm. people going to these venues would need to uh, show their vaccination uh, proof before they could get in. Um, but now, and also America just put a, a Britain onto the, the most dangerous list of places yeah. not yeah, to Yeah, no, go. the whole thing is a the whole thing is a tragedy. It's, it's weird in the U.S. It's something like 99% of the people in the U.S. who have COVID at the moment are unvaccinated, whereas in the U.K., because you have a very high rate of vaccination, a lot of the people who are getting it are already vaccinated. But it is also worth remembering, of course, that percentage-wise, the deaths in the U.K. have shrunk absolutely dramatically, thus proving that vac- vaccination does, to a huge extent, break the link between sickness and death. But the trouble is, you know, you've still got nearly half the population unvaccinated, uh, and they're unbelievably vulnerable to this Freedom Day nonsense. That's right. And um, so what I was saying was that New Zealand needs to really make sure we get up to that 80 90% level, and particularly mm. the, the hard-to-get last 10 20%. And what we found so yeah. far 
is that the vaccination rates amongst Māori and Pacifica, particularly in South Auckland and in remote areas like Gisborne and the East Coast, have been quite low and lower than expected. In many way, in many cases, because um, many many people are working, you know, multiple jobs on um, awkward shift hours, they can't arrange the appointments with the vaccinators. Many don't have mobile phones. Uh, many don't uh, have English as their as their first language, and so when you're designing your programs, you have to take into account the the different levels of connection with the health services, the, the different levels of trust. Yep. For example, there's a particular problem with the vaccination programs for um, uh, measles in the last few years, mm. particularly mm. with the Plunkett um, uh, program, where they were giving away bags of nappies in exchange for vaccinations and also food vouchers, um, which, mm. as it turned out, was um, counterproductive because a whole bunch of people saw this as paternalistic. And um, some of the vaccinators yeah. were started to think that the money that was being given away was being used for um, uh, drink and, and drugs, which, of course, um, just reeks of all sorts of uh, nastiness. Yeah, and, 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 and measles... And measles is shockingly contagious and shockingly dangerous. So, yeah, I think you're right. We've got to go to where the people are. I just, I just still wonder what the role of the media is in this as well. Whether, whether the media is being effectiveness. And I think it's a very interesting problem for all media organisations about how they report on this. What are they doing to give the best information? And and also, I guess I include uh, Facebook in that. I mean, Facebook's running very, very prominent. Um, uh, government information on on COVID, and you know, presumably it's getting through, but it, but maybe it isn't cutting through with some of these critical audiences. Yeah, um, it was interesting at the beginning of the week. Um, Joe Biden coming out at least initially and and essentially accusing Facebook of Facebook of killing people by allowing misinformation yeah. on the platform. He he did row that back a bit later on, and um, it's interesting too that. The Fox News tone on um, the uh, vaccination issue has flipped quite dramatically in the last yep. last week. We had yep. uh, Sean Hannity come out and essentially do a double twist with a couple of loops uh, in saying that everyone should get vaccinated. And it's interesting that it looks like the White House have been in touch with Fox News to say, hey, guys, um, do the right thing by the public and well, start I, I, talking I about vaccination. I wonder whether it's actually Rupert Murdoch who got vaccinated very early on as a, as a nearly 90 year old in the UK, uh, also ringing them up and saying, hang on a minute, we're killing off our own readership, our own viewership. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's, there's, a, there's a real problem there. Yeah, no, so that's, um, that's an interesting one. So what, what else did you wanted to focus on today? Well, I was going to say, you, you, Bernard, you, you've, you've done some more on the end of quantitative easing or the current wave of quantitative easing by the Reserve Bank. Let's, let's just touch on again what, the, what that is and, and how it's driven up asset prices, including housing. That's right. I, I thought What's today was now? a big day for, for, for New Zealand because uh, the Reserve Bank finished its money printing program today. Remember last week it came out and said it was going to finish it up and indicated it would start putting up interest rates from next month. And uh, we now know that the Reserve Bank uh, printed $53.5 billion to buy government bonds over the last um, year and three or four months. It did it uh, without much uh, discussion with the government. The government had to approve it 
but um, it had an enormous impact. Uh, it flooded the market with liquidity, gave the banks lots of cash to lend out. Almost all of that went into the housing market. It wasn't going to business loans. It was going into the housing market. And at the same time, the Reserve Bank removed its restrictions on loan-to-value ratios, essentially unleashed the banks to go for it. And what we saw yeah. was a 30% increase in house prices. Now, for New Zealand, and New Zealanders, our our wealth is very much tied up in our houses. And we got some figures yesterday from StatsNZ on the effect this has had on household wealth. And it's worth just putting it down on paper, if you like, to show everyone that this decision... With, by, with our pieces of verbal paper here, yeah. Yes, that's right. This decision by the um, supposedly independent Reserve Bank has had a massive impact on the distribution of wealth and the creation mm. of wealth in a very short period of time. So we're talking an extra $402 billion of wealth was has been created in a, in a year of covid the total household wealth is now worth $2.3 trillion. And even the Reserve Bank's own figures show that most of that wealth is concentrated in the top 40%. Most of that wealth is concentrated in the hands of people over the age of 50. And uh, even though it says at the moment that it's um, it's not sure whether or not its money printing actually worsened inequality, which uh, seems um, to beg a belief, uh, it certainly um, changed New Zealand in a big way and has made it much harder for those people who don't have wealthy families to get onto the ladder, if you like, and start to plan mm. for their future. Mm. And at the same time, this week we had a um, uh, a survey that came out which had asked a whole bunch of uh, people, 500 New Zealanders, including about 40% who are in that Gen X and uh, sorry, Gen Y and Gen Z um, age groups asking them about their hopes and dreams for their futures and their families. Mm. And 88% said that they now uh, couldn't seriously expect to um, fulfill their dreams of home ownership. And mm. um, I, I just think it was worth uh, noting as we end this apparently ex this extraordinary period in New Zealand's history, the first ever time we've done it, how much of an impact has had and also yeah. how little debate we're having in our public sphere about it. No political party has raised this. And will, will, the, will the end of this phase of quantitative easing, how, how, how quickly will that reduction in, in quantitative easing flow through? Or is there still so much heat and so much, so many billions in the market that it, 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 it's permanent in a sense? Or the legacy, the legacy might as well be permanent. Yeah, well, we know the Reserve Bank has said in the last month or so that it expects those extra bonds that it put onto its balance sheet with the printed money, money to stay there for decades. So they're not planning to unwind it very fast. Mm. The market mm. couldn't handle it. And secondly, um, the Reserve Bank is expected to put up interest rates over the next um, 18 months by about uh, from about 0.25% to 2%. So that would move... Mm -hmm fixed and floating mortgage rates. Which in percentage around. terms is a rather a lot. It is, that's right. And, yeah. and that would move mortgage rates from around about um, two, two and a half to four, four and a half, five, depending if it's floating or fixed. And that is, um, on the face of it, going to double the servicing costs for people with mortgages. Mm. But, what, mm. but what people don't quite realise is that um, most of the loans done in the last uh, 10 years or so have been done by the banks with uh, not the actual interest rate in mind when they do their preparations on 
on whether someone can afford a loan. Yeah. They actually assume that whoever's taking out the loan can afford it at a certain much higher level of interest rates. So yeah, yeah. If I go in there the and, yeah, that's that's true. And also, I mean, to be fair to them as well, it, it means that they're not being irresponsible lenders. Because if someone rocks up, you know, um, sub subprime style um, in those so-called um, no income, no jobs, no assets, ninja loans mm-hmm. <laughs> that you saw in America. We don't have those here. And it means that um, the threshold is often around about 6, 6.5%. So if I rock up to the bank and say, hey, gee, I can afford this 2.5% mortgage rate on $3 million. Look, I just did the numbers. The bank will say, no, 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 no. You need to be able to afford it at 6%. You're not getting the loan at all until you yeah. can afford it at 6%. So that means that even if we see a doubling of those mortgage rates, it's not going to put um, most New Zealand borrowers under enormous pressure. In fact, at the moment, those borrowers are currently spending about 6% of their disposable income servicing mm. their mortgage. And that's less than half. Which is of the, that's, a, that's a hell of a lot. That, that's, that's, that seems an amazingly small number. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's the average right across the market. And there'll be a lot of people who got in in the last six months who are more like 46% than 6%. Yeah. But what it means is that uh, a lot of people think that higher interest rates are going to take an enormous amount of heat out of the market and you could actually see some sort of fall. I don't see that at all, um, given the lack of mortgage stress there is out there, the way the banks have protected themselves and us from not over uh, lending into the market. And the mm-hmm. other thing to think about um, when we think, oh, well, don't worry about this 30% increase in prices in the last year because of quantitative easing, that was actually mostly about, um, uh, you know, it's not going to be unwound because we're not going to see a big increase in interest rates that um, that really puts the market under stress. And secondly, as we've seen in the last week, um, central banks around the world are becoming less worried about inflation for the yeah. reason we've got these Delta variants ripping through economies. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, for example, the Reserve Bank of Australia said um, a couple of weeks ago before the outbreak in Sydney that it might uh, start winding back its quantitative easing, doing what they call a taper. But even in the last couple of days, a lot of the commentators in Australia are saying the Reserve Bank will have to reverse its taper and actually do yeah. more money printing to go from five yeah, billion. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, just, I have a feeling. I have a feeling that as we get into autumn in the, in Europe, that and the United States, that things are going to be pretty bleak. That we're going. To, there's been this kind of, as you see, with this ridiculous Freedom Day nonsense in the UK. I just have a feeling there's going to be another kind of pretty horrible reality check. And it, it, you know, New Zealand might as well hold the line, uh, with its elimination strategy and try and protect the economy the way it has. But for God's sake, please get on with the, with the vaccination a bit more. Yeah. The one thing that struck me in, in doing the reporting for this piece on nudge economics is that, um, the Māori and Pacifica communities are actually really keen on mass events. So this is where mm-hmm. everyone in the family, all of the extended family, members of your church, get together, talk to each other, decide everyone's going to turn up on that day to the stadium or to the the church hall. Um, there's going to be a party. There's going to be um, music. There's going to be sausages. There's going to be a hungy. And it's going to be a celebratory event. And you bring everyone along. It becomes a positive thing. It means that people aren't reliant on mobile phone messages or yeah, navigating yeah. websites to get there. You organize it ahead of time. And there is actually going to be a trial next weekend in Manukau at the Vodafone Event Centre when it's expected 15,000 people from the um, uh, Pacifica communities will go through. 
But it, stri- it strikes me, we do have now hundreds of thousands of doses sitting in um, warehouses and very deep freezers. Um, it strikes me, I think we need more of a, a sense of urgency and, you know, let's do, get as much as we can, get them in the arms right now. Even if yeah, we yeah, you know, run out in a couple of weeks, um, these mass events are the best way to do it. I mean, if we can get... 60,000 people turn up to a, a rugby game at 7 o'clock and they're all out of the stadium by 9.30. How hard is it to do, yeah. you know, 30,000 people in a maybe day? We need to, maybe we need to vaccinate them at a rugby game yes, or, at a right. or at a 660 concert. That's right. But, of course, the problem now is there isn't going to be a rugby game because, as we heard today, the government has uh, just essentially dissolved the uh, Trans-Tasman travel bubble for mm. at least mm. eight weeks and that means the Bladers Low Cup matches are in, are in deep trouble. Um, and what, what struck me, I don't know if you watched the, um, the full um, uh, presentation from Jacinda Ardern and Ashley Bloomfield today, but I think there's a real darkness that has descended on the government's thinking about the next few months and just how dangerous the Delta variant is. Yes, um, yes. And and how, and, but presumably also how relatively unprepared for it we are because our vaccination, you know, we haven't taken full advantage. And I, and I don't mean to be mean to them. You know, they, they've, they've been very effective in so many other ways, but they haven't necessarily taken full advantage of this really being the only way to open up is for us all to achieve, you know, herd immunity through vaccination. Yeah, no, you could sense a real sense of soberness uh, in how, mm. what the Prime Minister and Ashley Bloomfield were talking about today. For example, uh, the Prime Minister essentially begged New Zealanders who had travelled to Australia to come home as soon as they home. possibly could. Yep. Yep. And, and um, you know, there's 20,000 New Zealanders who have gone across there when the bubble was open. And she, and she was actually saying, just come home as soon as you can. We'll have special yep. flights. We'll bring you in. It does mean those people coming from the new, from New South Wales will have to go through MIQ for a couple of weeks, and those people coming from Victoria will have to self-isolate and take tests after three days. But what what it means, I think, is that I actually think the bubble is dead at least until the end of September, given the way yep. it seems to be out of control in New South Wales. And um, my thesis about the reopening of the borders in a meaningful way was always going to be 2023, but the longer I look at it and the way that the Delta variant, and no doubt there'll be more, is A, uh, infecting people who have already had the vaccine. Now, luckily, it means they're not dying or needing to go to hospital, yeah, but yeah. they are still spreading it. And so are um, you suggesting you and I are going to be stuck here together? That's right. We're doing this every week for Decades. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but so it, it, does, it does make this more important, right. though, because we are, re- are, are really at risk in New Zealand of becoming isolated from what's happening in the rest of the world. We won't and let that happen. No, no, we'll, we'll, make, sure, we'll make sure. Well, I think, I think so. I, I personally still think there's a high likelihood that the Tokyo Olympics won't go ahead, won't go ahead at all. But I did a piece this week in the in the spin-off thing um, about doping at the at the Olympics. So it was drawn mainly from a, a really good piece in the Economist, particularly a very good podcast by the Economist in their Babbage po- po- podcast. And one of the things that really struck me is they had uh, one of the British swimmers from the 1980s there, and she was talking about how it had affected her career to lose to the Eastern European dopers, mm-hmm. and she'd been extremely successful but she was still beaten by people who were cheating. And, you know, it had really, and it was a very interesting kind of human perspective on it because these, 
you know, these people train so much. And, and you know, the, the, the economists, you know, forecast that a very significant percentage of people at, um, at Tokyo will still try to dope. Um, and they'll do it through both the usual things like steroids and so on, but they'll, they'll often do it through blood doping, which is taking transfusions and so on, which is much, much harder to detect. And there's a whole range of new things. Although it was quite amusing seeing the equestrian person the other day suspended for cocaine, um, <laughs> which, was, which was him, not the horse. No. Yeah, those um, equestrian types, um, there's been a few issues with that in New Zealand as well. So There have been a few issues with that. Yeah, they're naughty, yeah. naughty people. That's um, right. I also did something, but that's really, I don't know why, well, I do know why. So, you know, New Zealand won awards for that, that rather extraordinary, uh, public service announcement. I mean, New Zealand does public service announcements very, very well. And also probably the media would be finished if the government didn't spend such gigantic sums on public service announcements. Um, but the one that they did on pornography, I thought was extremely interesting. And, you know, I think if you talk to anybody with children, in a way, it doesn't matter how old those children are. The exposure of young people today to unbelievable quantities and availability of pornography is an extraordinary phenomenon. And so one of the things that I talked about this week was it was a piece in the Atlantic uh, magazine about a woman who was fired from her job as a as a as a wellness and health counselor at a at a New York school because she was running uh, programs to try and explain to kids how they should respond to pornography. And the parents thought this was just too risque, uh, whereas, of course, it's it's totally the opposite of what the, you know, it's it's. You know, the kids can see appalling, misogynistic, sometimes crime-ridden enactments, or the real, the real thing. And um, I, I think it is a really extraordinary problem that the the access is so far. I don't know. I don't have a good answer to it other than empowering people, because you know we have accepted a kind of it's all wide open and free, and no registration and no uh, certification of age or anything like that. You know, we, we if we have we have gone open slather on pornography. Yeah, um, I do wonder at some point whether there's going to be a a backlash against the open internet that is much more substantial than just you know talk about political commentary, and uh, whether at some point, particularly when we start to see the research coming through, it's going to take you know decades for the. Um, Longitudinal studies to show us the effect of all these things, but mm, um, mm. you do you do take notice when people who are have been deeply involved in the big tech companies of Google and Facebook actually withdraw themselves from the internet and stop their kids yeah. from being involved in the yeah. internet. It's not a good sign. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think I might have told you well, I, I, I was involved in an interview with Tim Berners Lee at one point and. He said he absolutely refused to have. This is not about pornography, of course, but he said he absolutely refused to have um, Amazon Alexa or the Google or the or the Google Assistant in his house because he considered it to be the greatest breach of personal privacy that he'd ever seen. So, Speaking of know, um, breaches of personal privacy, yeah, Pegasus has been the yeah. big story this week. The Guardian and a bunch of other papers have done uh, one of these, you know, Panama, Panama Papers exposés from a data dump showing that apparently Israeli software has been used by all sorts of people to track all sorts of people, many of whom are journalists. And uh, this story has plenty plenty of uh, runway yet. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary story. It's a company called NSO, and it's been around for a while. Um, and it, oddly, it isn't one of the ones that grew out of the Israeli Defense Force, but it is a really interesting company. Um, 
there's a terrific piece in the Washington Post this week with its founder saying essentially we only wanted to do good. Uh, and the trouble is, you know, once you once you give tools like this to people like Mohammed bin Salman in uh, Saudi Arabia, he uses it to track um, to track uh, Khashoggi and murder him in uh, the um, in the in the um, Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Yeah, and much else besides. And what's interesting, one of the interesting things about it to me is the way it's become uh, kind of the tip of the spear, if you like, for Israel's official diplomacy and its moves to get closer to the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and others. They've all been given access to NSO and are, and are quite happy to use it against politicians, journalists, whomever else. I mean, Emmanuel Macron is one of the people who's... Um, wow been been intercepted and in Hungary which Israel has or Netanyahu has cuddled up to you've got Viktor Orban who was effectively a democratically elected dictator uh is using you know NSO software widely to um combat what remains the little that remains of the independent media so it is a really it's interesting because the well one of the many aspects of it is that the product requires government approval to sell because it's considered to be a weapon and it certainly seems to behave that way yeah, and on the, you know, um, spies front, um, more news on this weird Havana syndrome. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, it's so I've been reading about this since it, since it first happened. And there was one American study, I think for the State Department, which suggested that it was actually loud crickets, uh, in, outside the Havana, <laughs> outside the, pro, and, and it, because they were, essentially it was people in Havana, at the Havana embassy, U.S. embassy in Havana or the U.S. Uh, actually, I don't think it is an embassy anymore. It's the U.S. Um, interest section. Um, we're picking up this this problem. They were getting a ringing in the ears. They were getting memory loss. It all sounded a bit sort of hypochondriac, except that you know there's a couple of hundred of them now, and it appears to be or maybe some kind of concentrated energy device, like a beam, um, which people are blaming on Russia, of course, or the Cubans perhaps. But it seems to have also turned up quite recently in. Uh, Vienna, where, which as you know, is a, you know, an amazing center for, uh, diplomacy, spying, and, you know, it always has been. Um, and, and so the, you know, the, the CIA has launched another inquiry to find out what's really going on with this. But it is kind of interesting that these, there's these obscure weapons that we don't necessarily fully understand, um, that can do this kind of thing. Yeah, I'm just staying uh, overseas and in the air. Um, climate change. Uh, I know it's happening every week and there seems to be a new extreme weather event every week, but boy, every part of the globe this week. Um, what stood out for you? Which, which major weather event? And we well, had our own, of course, I, I in the West maybe Coast. We talked about this before, but I keep being reminded of that film, The Day After Tomorrow from 20th Century Fox, where they kind of sped up all of these tipping points. And it kind of feels as though all these tipping points have been have been sort of sped up. You know, you've got fire. I, I saw the fires in Siberia last week and they are just absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, you've through them, through the permafrost melting, you've got the most extraordinary releases of, um, of carbon, uh, of trapped carbon. And then in the United States, you've got these huge, huge forest fires and this problem now of, you know, which is in a sense, uh, you know, a good wake up call that it's causing an, an extraordinary pollution in, in New York. Um, but then there's flooding I and mean, the flooding in China this week, we get a year's, a year's rain in an afternoon. Uh, and we've all seen the pictures of that. You know, that's a town where the, where iPhone parts are made, where, you know, these are sophisticated, sophisticated cities and they're just being, uh, inundated. I mean, it's not quite, um, 
Westport, but it's a little more serious than Westport and about 80 homes in Westport being um, being inundated, not to be rude about anybody in Westport. No, and what what's interesting here is the feedback loops. The reason mm. Siberia is so interesting, 30 degrees Celsius in Siberia last week. Yeah. Apart from the fires, the release of the uh, carbon from the uh, permafrost. But if you look at particularly the melting of glaciers, the releasing of carbon, um, there are feedback loops happening all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you've got and this apparent shakiness of the, sorry, but you've got this apparent shakiness of the jet stream. Which is which is causing phenomenal turbulence in the UK. I mean, and one of the whole issues here is that if the jet stream goes um, goes haywire, you're also going to get the Gulf Stream and the sea going haywire, and the climate, particularly on that uh, west coast of the UK, of the UK, Ireland, Norway, is going to change dram- dramatically, or potentially change dramatically, and that's where you get these remarkable uh, spots like the big floods in Germany this week. And uh, on that front, I'd recommend everyone um, uh, Netflix and chill, if you like, with the series. I think there was two two series of them, Occupied. Oh, yeah, which is, which is, is about a, the Russians taking over in Norway. Yeah, we talked about that before. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And actually, quite like in, the affair between the Prime Minister and his and his uh, assistant. But, yeah. Pres- yeah. No, but, but what, what this week, the Norwegian energy minister came out and basically said um, – you know, uh, we've got the most electric cars, but we're still going to go out there exploring for oil and gas. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting set of problems. And I, uh, we, we too have also said this before, Bernard. I, I think that New Zealand maybe ha- has been a bit too quick on, on, on gas because, you know, gas is an important, potentially important transitional, um, fuel as we're trying to, you know, th- this whole thing with coal in New Zealand is a real embarrassment. And I mean, sorry, I, I mean that, uh, thermal coal, not uh, coking coal, which of course is essential for steel, but people forget that when they're talking about it. Yeah, so we're exporting still some coking coal from the west coast, mm. uh, but importing a million tonnes last year of the dirty Indonesian stuff yeah. to run the Huntley power plant. What was also interesting today, actually, we got news from Meridian and Contact, who both um, have interests in those big dams down at the bottom of the South Island, that, is so, that sells its power very cheaply to TY Point, and boy, they're they're cooking up a storm at the moment. Their uh, green uh, renewable aluminium is hot, hot, hot. In fact, mm. to the point where their 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 break-even point is now uh, at a price of one hundred and fifty dollars per megawatt, and they're only paying thirty-five dollars per megawatt. And what it means is that um, the hopes the Climate Commission had that the closure of of TY Point would free up a whole bunch of renewable Power yeah. to uh, to uh, re- refit our our fleet of petrol and diesel trucks and cars into electricity is going to get uh, going to struggle. But also, just to give you a sense of how hard it is to break through the status quo and make the changes that are needed, uh, Contact and and Meridian came out with a new proposal to use all that power from Manapuri, not to free it up to send it north for people to put into their cars here. But to turn it into hydrogen to export yeah. to the rest of the world <laughs> sounded to me like a really, really good idea, actually, because I think, you know, we we don't have time to sort of always address this kind of stuff. But you know, hydrogen is a really effective fuel. When it's burnt, it only produces or used, it only produces water out the back of your exhaust pipe. I, I've driven years ago a, a very nice BMW 7 Series that was powered by hydrogen, and it's you know exact. It, it has a much higher uh, sort of weight to power ratio 
than um, than electricity uh, and is or than sorry than other than solid fuels. And I think it is going to be part of the mix. It's kind of interesting. I was I thought it was a really good idea. And I was talking to somebody in the UK the other day who's working with Shell on part of their attempt to become an electricity vendor uh, and to move away from being and and one of the things that they're having to learn apparently is to have any relationship at all with their customers because they just don't you know they have a bunch they have a bunch of gas stations but they really don't know who turns up and why uh and and yet electricity is going to be all you know one-to-one it's going to be completely fungible you're not going to be able to sell you know shell turbo electricity it's just um ions you know and and so it's a really interesting problem how these companies are going to, uh, you know, fossil fuel companies are going to survive. And, and she was saying she thinks that electric cars are certainly part of the answer. And this is actually similar to what the power companies behind the hydrogen project were saying. But it, it's going to be a mix. So I think we, you know, this whole idea that we're all going to be, you know, swapping out our utes for plug-in utes is not entirely correct. There'll be other fuels in there as well. And I suspect that fossil fuels are going to go along a lot, uh, go go along a lot longer than we think they are. Yeah, but when you can see these feedback loops coming in there, and in New Zealand in particular, which increased its emissions from 1990 when everyone else hasn't, and you start to see not just an acceleration in the climate, but an acceleration in the policy response. So almost immediately after the European Union said a couple of weeks ago they were bringing in a carbon border adjustment mechanism, i.e. a a tax on the baddies who are exporting Mm. things into Europe like steel and concrete and um, ammonia and fertilizer, which is very carbon intensive. Now we've seen uh, America look to bring in a similar sort of thing mm-hmm. to Japan as well. So for countries like Australia and even New Zealand, I mean, we think we're good boys and girls, but actually um, our performance is awful on uh, climate yeah. change. Yeah, so and then far. of course you've got you've got John Kerry saying to, saying today or yesterday that um, nothing's going to happen if the Chinese don't act further. And you know, quite rightly, the Chinese say, "What the hell are you talking about? You know, look yeah. at how much you I mean, you, you know how I feel about what what aboutism, but." In that particular case, you know, the, we know that the Chinese have made a much, much bigger, bigger effort in electric cars and solar and so on. Um, I just, I, I, I'm, I sort of, I slightly despair at the way the U.S. is managing China, its diplomacy with China in all sorts of ways at the moment. Yeah, that that relationship got a little bit rockier this week when, at the beginning of the week, the United States, the European Union, Japan, NATO, Canada, Australia, mm. and New Zealand yeah. came out with a very strong, aggressively name and shame uh, the Ministry for State Security in China with being responsible for the latest series of uh, Microsoft Exchange uh, hacks, mm. which we understand were directly responsible for taking down the Waikato DHB in the last month or so. So the the the, the uh, level are you sure? Of, are you just wait a second? Are you sure about that? Because I I thought the DHB I thought it was known fact that the DHB was uh, ransomware. Well, or what's did they happened? Use the same what, thing. Yeah, the way that the statement came out from the GCSB and from Andrew Little is that the Chinese Ministry for State Security and its particular unit essentially used the Microsoft Exchange floor opened it up, and then a whole bunch mm. of other ransomware guys came in behind them. And uh, although no one in government has said that the Waikato DHP uh, uh, hacking was due to, at least initially, from the from the Chinese government, 
Um, it's interesting that the opposition leader, Judith Collins, accidentally on purpose let it out during a radio interview. This yeah, week. I wonder. And, what, yeah, I heard that, and I wondered if it was true. I mean, because I think one of the one of the problems with the story is, I think again, it's been reported quite badly uh, because it seemed to me that the way they handled that statement was exactly the way Nanaya Mahuta and Jacinda Ardern had said that New Zealand would act, which is that it would join with its partners where it was relevant on the things that were important and when there was clear evidence and take some risks in the relationship with China. And I, I thought that was very timely. And I think it's possible to have both the view that um, uh, they're going to call China out, but that they're also not going to do it just willy nilly. That they'll have, that, you know, and this was, this was seemed to be based on some very hard evidence. And also there hasn't really been a hard Chinese response at the moment. I mean, there's, I think the China, you know, and that's why embarrassment was being used or exposure rather than, than, than attack was being used. It was quite yeah, so subtle. I thought that was actually a relatively subtle diplomatic maneuver to say, look, enough is enough. We know you're behind it. Stop, please. Yeah. And, um, it's, we certainly had plenty of company this time and we'd be, we'd be, we'd be pretty grumpy if we were singled out for, for retribution. But, um, uh, it's noticeable. To, I just had a look back through all of the statements from the government in these sorts of areas aimed at China. And this was by far the strongest, most aggressive one. So mm. um, we did put ourselves out there a bit, but you're right. We did it with, um, with some mates, which was, which was good. Um, just to, to finish up um, our skateboarding dog story. What have you got for us yeah. this week? Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's so many, but you know, basically life is, is like skateboarding dogs. <laughs> and sort of you, you won't believe what he said this time, but there's quite a, quite a nice one from uh, the intercept with, uh, um, a, a journalist there, um, John Schwartz, who had a, tried to have a bit of fun with the right with the right wing, um, and he made up a whole bunch of tweets and statements and things about him himself uh, doing things like destroying Trump ballots in the election. And he, his, here's one of his tweets: "I'm still proud of all the work that myself and all my mainstream media friends did destroying Trump ballots, and also amazed that only a few sharp-eyed and trepid investigators." Have figured out, figured it out, and of course he's then been picked up by the right wing, and then saying, you know, with a, with a right wing nutter saying, left wing nut job writer from the Intercept admits publicly destroying Trump ballots in collusion with other journalists. You know, I mean, it, it, irony is in short supply in the United States at the best of times, but uh, you know, you you wind these people up at the at their peril. Be careful what you wish at for. Your peril. I suspect. That's yeah. right. No, That's right. I mean. Mind you, four or five years ago, um, when we all watched that Simpsons episode from 2000 again and said, oh, that, that'll never happen here. Yeah, yeah. As, as, yeah. The, the Simpsons as, uh, as a seer and as an academic subject. Oh, ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. As political science, yeah. It's, it's, it's right. Um, no, fantastic. Hey, Peter, really enjoyed our lap around the traps, uh, hoon, um, yeah. on the, yeah, on we'll the hoon around, again. hoon around again next week. And I'm sure we'll <laughs> hoon around just independently anyway. Great. And, and, uh, a great experiment this week. We're going to put this up onto, uh, LinkedIn via video. Please do, um, uh, uh comment and tell us what you want to see, what you don't want to see. And this is part of an experimentation for Peter and I just to see what, what works and what doesn't, but with the main aim of trying to uh, keep our fingers and toes in the waters around around us and make sure we don't get yeah. isolated because we're now well over a year and a half of being disconnected in a, in a physical sense, most of us, 
from the I rest feel of totally the world. Dis- I feel totally disconnected. I haven't. I haven't. I. I. I saw some pictures of uh, a place in Spain that I go to a lot this week, and it nearly made me weak. It felt like <laughs> a very long time away. But it, it uh, of course, I'm grateful to be in New Zealand. But don't forget the other motive in this is for us to make a huge amount of money. Bernard. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll put our bank accounts at the bottom of it. Bottom yeah, of the yeah, with the Meridian, yeah, from Meridian Energy and their fabulous, <laughs> you know, get your hydrogen here. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'm also going to try right. this interesting intro-outro to see if this works. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Oh, fantastic. Kakite anō. See you later next week.